The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Amen. You'll remain standing, turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, we'll look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 25. Page 60, if you're using the Pew Bible. Well, let us worship the Lord by giving careful attention to this, the public reading of his word, Exodus chapter 19, and beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the, to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a quick cloud, sorry, and a click thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. 
And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Grant us your blessing, O Lord God, again this evening as your word comes to us, both in the way in which we receive that word and in the way in which we respond to it in our lives. Grant, O Lord, that we might indeed worship you with reverence and awe. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, what kind of God is our God? How would you describe this God we learn of in this text this evening if you were to describe him to someone who didn't know him? Would you describe him as a God who you could easily approach, a God whom you'd think of nothing of going right up to, right? No big deal. Walk up, just walk up to God the same way you would walk up to your closest friend. In some ways, I suppose, if, if that's the, the common conception of what God is like, this text kind of challenges it, shatters it perhaps, blows it to smithereens. You might imagine yourself sharing this text with your unbelieving neighbor and simply asking the question, is the God herein revealed a God whom you would consider approachable or one not to be approached? Clearly on one level, I think your neighbor might say not to be approached, not at all. And yet, on the other hand, we must say, well, well, wasn't the whole point of the Exodus deliverance to bring, the, to bring God's people unto himself? He said, let my people go that they might come to me, that they might come and serve me, bring them out of Egypt, that they might come to me. And yet here we find that the Lord brings his people to Sinai. This is, this is the very place, you might recall, where, where the Lord revealed himself to, to Moses and revealed his plan for, for Moses to bring the people out, that they might come to him and serve him here. We saw that back in chapter 3 and verse 12. And here as they come near to the mountain, what do they find? Come, but don't come, right? Stay away. What do we make of this? Well, well, the issue here on, on one level, we'd say it's not, not an issue so much of what God is like. That is to say that God is not to be seen as something of a, a cranky old man who's become something of a recluse who wants nothing to do with, with anyone, can't get along with anyone, right? Or someone who's just sort of uh, inherently at enmity with, with people. Now, the problem, the problem is not with him, but with them. The problem's with us. The problem is the problem of sin, our sin. And amazingly, despite human sin, what happens? Here we have this, this chapter which focuses on instructions given to the people as God is preparing for his presence at Mount Sinai where he will enter into covenant with them. God here reveals that grace whereby he will make a way for his people indeed to draw near, to draw near to him, to, to become his people. Our message this evening is this, that the holy God, though unapproachable because of sin, will bring his people near by way of his covenant. 
I have three points for us this evening. We'll see first how the Lord will have for himself a treasured possession of a kingdom of priests. We'll see secondly how through his mediator he will come down to consecrate his people for himself. And then lastly, we'll consider how all of this reveals the grace of God in the coming mediator, Messiah. So consider that first point, then, that the Lord will have for himself a treasured possession of a kingdom of priests. We're focusing first on that, that first part of the text there. It's, it's really the, the second part which, focus, which presents God as one who is unapproachable to a sinful people. But I, what I want to suggest this evening is the fact that God is to them so unapproachable because of their sin makes it all the more amazing what we learn in this first part. To think that of such a people, of such a sinful people, here the Lord has purposed to have for himself uh, in them a treasured possession of a kingdom of priests. Just think about those words, you know. They might raise the question for us this evening. Christian, think about yourself this evening. Uh, What are you worth? Do you live with a sense that you don't have much value? Not Not much worth to God? Not much good you can do in your life? Or do you wake up every day with a sense that you are precious, that you are important to God, that you have something good and important to do, something good and important to God, with a sense that God has brought you near to him, to live with him, to live in his presence, to live for him. See, if you do have that sense then, then, then the next question would be, is it something, that you, do you have a sense that it's based on anything that you've done? Have you, have you earned that important status before your God, or is it something that is yours all because of his grace? So we consider the language of the text here, verses 5 and 6, the very language uh, I'm describing here, treasured possession, kingdom of priests. What does it say about what God desires in terms of having for himself a people. Does, does that language communicate a God that doesn't want anything to do with his people, that he doesn't want to be approached by his people? Do those, do those words speak the message, stay away from me? Of course not. That language, treasured possession, speaks of something dear to God, something that God would want to keep near to him, right? And when we think of priests, We think of those ones who would come near unto God, drawing near for a holy purpose to do something important, to intercede on behalf of others for God. But but if the holy God will have for himself a people who would draw near to him, it must be by amazing Grace, And let's not miss this evening, brothers and sisters, how this, this text is just filled with the message of God's grace. It, it really speaks of that, that covenant, which we refer to as the covenant of grace. That, that covenant of grace, which was revealed way back in the garden. We think of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. By the way, Mount Sinai points back to the Garden of Eden to the, the mountain of God, as it's called in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14. It's 
From the very, very beginning, God had a plan, a plan whereby he would bring his people up. They would ascend the mountain, as it were, up the mountain into the presence of God to dwell with him on his mountain forever and ever. Of course, we know that that plan was ruined because of our sin. The covenant of works was broken. But we praise God for the covenant of grace. Well, God's covenant was so wonderfully further disclosed and administered right here at Sinai, where the Lord enters into covenant with his people. People are going to camp here, camp here at the mountain for an entire year. Imagine, children, what that must have been like camping at the foot of Mount Sinai for a full year. And during this time, the Lord is going to deliver to them all of the words of the covenant. The the words of the covenant will begin in the next chapter, Exodus chapter 20, and will continue all the way through the book of Exodus, all the way to the end of the book of Leviticus, chapter 27. And it will begin with grace, a reminder of the grace of of God. Exodus, Exodus 20, verse 2, the Lord will say, I am the Lord your, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so here, as the Lord is, is preparing his people to hear all of the words of the covenant we have in these opening verses of our text this evening, something of a, a summary of the covenant. And again, notice how these, these verses so wonderfully reveal God's grace. Again, the very fact that God has has brought them to this mountain marks the fulfillment of his promise of grace. The Lord had, you might recall, when he spoke to Moses, he revealed how he had heard the groaning of his people. He heard their groaning, and he remembered his gracious promise, even the promise which he'd made to Abraham. And so he promised to deliver them. And here we find that God has graciously kept his promise. And in verse 4, it describes just that, doesn't it? He describes this with language which, which so, so wonderfully, again, speaks to his desire for that nearness. Does, does this language describe a God who wishes to remain distant from his people? Look what it says here. It says, I bore you on eagle's wings, like a, like a mother eagle coming near to her chicks, her eaglets, uh, helping them as they're struggling to fly. It says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. If you have a, a hard time uh, imagining God as a gracious God this evening, just, just think about how different the Lord was than was Pharaoh. We should not misunderstand the word possession here to, to think that, that, that what's being described is another form of slavery, right? Tantamount to, to what Israel experienced in Egypt. And Israel meant nothing to Pharaoh. They were, they were nothing but property, right? A means of selfish gain, brickmakers. But here the Lord reveals to them that, that they will be for him his treasured possession, treasured possession and priests. He was calling the people to be a people who would commune with him in worship and to do so willingly. This would not be cruel bondage. And calling the people into covenant with himself, the Lord was not going to impose upon them something contrary to their will as Pharaoh had done. Note the language there of verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will, this is a, a gracious 
invitation, a gracious invitation, which we see that they they accept. The people say in verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But but, but this is a a gracious invitation. It's an invitation to respond to what God has already graciously done. We we know, of course, in salvation that that God does, by his sovereign grace, he does such a work in our heart that he he changes our will. He's the one that enables us to respond to his gracious invitation. We were reminded of that even this morning. The Lord does not force us to act contrary to our will. Christian, the Lord does not desire to have, uh, to have in you one who would be serving him out of slavish fear, right? He doesn't want you living your life thinking, oh no, if I don't do it, if I, if I don't gather enough straw, if I don't produce enough bricks, there's going to be a whip on my back. If that's the way we think, if that's the, the, the mentality we have as we live our Christian life, then we don't properly understand the grace of of God, part of the purpose for which God, in his infinite wisdom, has, has redeemed us, has saved us all by his grace, is so that we might be a people who are serving him, not, not slavishly, not out of slavish fear, but eagerly serving him in gratitude for all that he has done for us. And so the Lord desired that his people uh, serve him, and they, they, they do so continually remembering their redemption remembering that, that their redemption was not something they would be earning by their obedient service. Know that they, they were to understand very clearly that their redemption was a prior reality out of which they would then serve the Lord. And Israel had a lot of work to do that year, didn't they? It would be a year in which they would be gathering all of the, the materials and preparing everything for the tabernacle. But the Lord wanted them to go about that work serving, not, not out of fear, but serving the Lord out of love. And they were to do so, not only for themselves. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. The whole earth is mine, but you will be a kingdom of priests. Israel was, was called to be a, something of a, a testimony of God's redeeming grace, not only for themselves, but for the entire world, a light for all of the nations. What a privilege What a high and holy calling. Well, how would it be possible? That brings us to our second point this evening, which is that through the mediator, the Lord would indeed come down and he would consecrate his people for himself. Yes, we certainly do. We see the inapproachability of God due to the sin of the people. We see in verse 12 that, that limits were set. They were not to go up the mountain. Not only were they not to go up the mountain, they were not even need to, to touch the end of it. And violators were not only to be judged and put to death, but violators were to be considered something of a, a cursed source of defilement. Even the violators were not to be touched. Of the one who touches the mountain, what does it say in verse 13? No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. If you jump down to verse 21, we see that the Lord tells Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. If they break through to the Lord, what will happen? Well, we see that warning in verses 22 and 24 that the Lord will break out against them. Even the, even the priests are in danger of, of going 
too close, though they are able to go partway up the mountain, as we see. But, But this reminds us that no sinner is to take it upon himself or herself to enter into the presence of God without, expect, without expecting to be utterly consumed. I mean, we can think of, of instances in the Bible where this, was, where this is illustrated. We think of Leviticus chapter 10. Remember when Nadab and Abihu offer, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And we're told in verse 2, Levitic, Leviticus 10 verse 2, that fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 6, remember when Uzzah touched the ark contrary to the command of God and we're told that that the anger of the Lord was kindled and God struck him down. And just think about how this is communicated by, by all of the sights and the sounds of Mount Sinai, even as we see it in our passage this evening. That you hear the thunders, see the lightning, see the thick cloud, hear that loud trumpet blast and the mountain being wrapped in smoke, the Lord descending in fire. The end of verse 16 says that, that all the people in the camp trembled. In fact, verse 18, we're told that even the mountain, the whole mountain trembled. God's own voice, which verse 19 tells us was like thunder. I mean, all of this was, was a terrifying sight. It rightly struck terror into the hearts of the people at the very thought of approaching God because of their sin. But friends, all of this was a gracious warning, wasn't it? A warning that they might avoid death in order that they might come to God by that means which God had revealed. Through the mediator, Moses the mediator, here God had, had, had raised up one who would stand between the holy God and his sinful people. So, so the people could not go up the mountain into the presence of God. Instead, Moses went up. Moses went up and he came down. You know, the, the, the work of being the mediator was hard work, wasn't it? Can you imagine that? All of, all of the work Moses did, hiking up and down the mountain, up and down the mountain he would go. He would, he would speak to the people on behalf of God, and he would then speak to God, he would speak to, uh, God on behalf of the people. But what a great work it was. And this is, again, not, not simply to prevent their death, but this was for the purpose that, that, that God would consecrate them. To consecrate, that means to set them apart unto a holy purpose. Again, God would consecrate his people as that, 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 that kingdom of priests. And here we see that they were consecrated so that, they could, uh, so that God could come down to meet them and meet with them and enter into covenant with them. We see in verses 10 through 15 that this uh, consecration to meet with God involved two days of preparation so that God would then come and, and come to them on the third day. That they washed their clothes. It symbolized their, their uh, need for spiritual cleansing. They were to abstain from physical relations. It's not, of course, that, not that physical intimacy in the context of marriage is at all sinful. Of course not. But abstinence was appropriate at times as part of, part of setting oneself apart in order to meet with God. In fact, we're told in Leviticus chapter 15 that it was required in order to be ceremonially clean when planning to enter uh, into the tabernacle. 
And part of God, what God was doing here at Sinai was giving the people a picture of the tabernacle and what it would be. Sinai pointed back to Eden. Sinai also pointed forward to the tabernacle. In fact, something that has been pointed out here is that the, there were sort of three divisions on Mount Sinai, and these three divisions would correspond to the, the three divisions of the tabernacle, the outer court, the holy place, and then the most holy place, or the holy of holies. So here at Mount Sinai, we see that there was the base of the mountain where all of the congregation was permitted to be. That was, that was like the outer court of the tabernacle. And then some were able to go partway up the mountain, the priests, as we read in verse 22. In fact, in Exodus chapter 24, we're going to see that, that the 70 elders were permitted to go partway up. And so that represented the, the holy place. But only Moses and with him Aaron, as we see in verse 24. And so, so the high priest, only the high priest could go all the way up to the top into that that uh, most holy place, the holy of holies, as it were. So how fitting it was that here the Lord would make Sinai a picture of the tabernacle, teaching the people about the tabernacle while consecrating them unto that that holy service whereby they would make provisions for the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be that, that special place that place where the Lord would meet with his people, where he would reveal his grace, his gracious provision of that means whereby they could come into his presence, where atonement would be made for their sins through sacrifice, where they would be washed, they would be forgiven, they would be consecrated unto his service. Even after Moses, the great mediator, would be dead and gone, the mediatorial work of the priests would continue, such that God's people, God's treasured possession, would be able to walk before him and serve him in holiness, living as that that kingdom of priests which God was calling them to be, a kingdom of of priests, we should point out here that that that, that yes, Mount Sinai uh, point, pointed forward to the tabernacle. Well, it also pointed forward to the entire promised land, the land of Canaan, which God had promised for His people, where He would dwell with them. God would bring them to dwell with Him on His holy mountain, as it were, in that holy land which He had promised them. Well, what a privilege! Again, what a glorious calling! What marvelous grace! But brothers and sisters, none of this ultimately was for for them, not them alone. In fact, for so many of that first generation, sadly, they would not truly ever come to participate in the covenant, not inwardly. So many of them never came to know the Lord's grace and to embrace him by faith. And so all that we see in this passage this evening really pointed forward, pointed forward to something greater And that brings us to our last point this evening, that all of this revealed the grace of the coming mediator, Messiah. Christian, this evening, do you think that your God, uh, do you think of your God as one who remains unapproachable to you? Do you view your life as one that isn't isn't worth much? You're not, not worth much to God, right? Not, not much of any good, good or significance or importance for you to do. 
Or did you find yourself maybe thinking that way and yet at the same time striving to get into the good graces of your God by your own efforts only to live with the sense that, well, he's disappointed with me, right? Disappointed, continually crying out, more bricks, more bricks, whipping your back, as it were, well, well, punishing you for your failures and saying, do more, do more. If that's the way we think of our God, then perhaps what, what needs to be shattered this evening, uh, what needs to be blown to smithereens, is just that, our failure to rightly understand the grace of God. And we, we understand that rightly as we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an amazing text about, about the grace of God coming down to his people. Dr. Morales points out that that really is what chapter 19 stresses. Later, chapter 24 will will emphasize the the going up, the ascending unto God. But here the focus is on Yahweh's descent on the mountain and Moses' own descent from the summit to the people. That, that, That word descend, Hebrew yarad, appears seven times in this chapter. And we know that that ultimately God's descending, his, his condescending grace is revealed in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ that God comes down, and he comes down not only, not only to the top of Mount Sinai to remain distant from his people. No, he comes all the way down. God doesn't simply send down a mediator, but in Christ, God himself becomes the mediator. He comes down. He came all the way down and became true man. That's why I had us think about who is the redeemer of God's elect. It's Christ. And that's the way I had us thinking about the amazing humiliation of Christ. Talk about a low estate. The wondrous mystery of the cross is that God's own son, the one who himself was God, the one who was God's supremely treasured possession, he had to come down. And he had to be made the enemy in bearing the curse of our sin. For a time, Christ himself had to be the one who could not approach God, the one who had to be cast off, the one who had to be forsaken. And it's strange, in one sense, we ask the question, well, why, why didn't God simply give Israel over to their sin? Why didn't he allow them to walk, uh, to enter the mountain, into the presence of God, and be struck down and destroyed? Well, the answer is he would consecrate and he would preserve his people because of Christ, because of them, from them would come that one who is the Savior of the world. And yet, on the other hand, we know that, that, that God indeed had to break out against Christ, Jesus is that one who who had to be consumed by the fire of God's holy wrath against sinners for our sin. And yet, paradoxically, Christ is the one who in so doing was, 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 was acting, living as God's treasured possession, doing that work that was supremely pleasing to God, even in offering himself up for us. Uh, Christ became all that Israel had failed to be. Just think about those words. Here was Israel promising all that the Lord has spoken. We will do it. How quickly they would break that promise. How quickly they would forsake the Lord and his commandments. And that's why uh, we have to hear those words. All that you have said we will do. How quickly those very words would only condemn them. The law would only condemn them. And us. That's why we do well to remember that, yes, 
in the Old Covenant, the, the grace of God is revealed, but it also reveals our need for that grace by giving us a law that condemns us. It condemns us and drives us to Christ. It's marvelous the way God's grace is revealed in the mediator Moses, but at the same time it reveals the the need for, for that greater mediator, the coming Messiah. And so we find Jesus, just Jesus, the one who has come. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the law, the one who perfectly fulfilled that great calling to be a kingdom of priests by his own great kingly priestly work of laying down his life making atonement for our sins. And that's why it's true that that all of God's covenant promises are yea and amen for us in Christ. In Christ, God has not only come come down to us, but God is the one who brings, in Christ, uh, God brings us up, brings us up the mountain into his presence Not only did Sinai point back to Eden, the mountain of God, and forward to the tabernacle, and ultimately forward to the land of Canaan, but beyond that, Sinai was a type of heaven, the new Jerusalem, where where the Lord brings his people up to dwell with him in glory forever and ever. That's why the New Testament tells us that that in the old covenant, as marvelous as as it was that God had made this way whereby his people could approach him through sacrifice, and yet we're told that the way into the Holy of Holies had not been made known as long as that earthly tabernacle continued standing. There was that need for for Christ to come and open up a new and living way, and that's what God has done. That's what Christ has done. It's in Christ that it's in, it's in Christ that we're brought into heaven itself to dwell in the presence of God. You know, we look at Hebrews chapter 12, and we're told that, that, that we've not come back to Sinai. As new covenant believers in Christ, Christ has not brought us back, back into the old, back to the terrifying sight of that, that mountain filled with blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. No, he's brought us Upward, He's brought us to Mount Zion. He's brought us to the city of the living God. He has brought us to the new Jerusalem, heaven. And heaven will not be a place where, where God's people serve him and, and worship him out of slavish fear, but in perfect love, in, in p- perfect devotion forever and ever. That's what it means to be consecrated and as God's holy people, as Dr. Ferguson right, rightly taught us in the the, uh, the officer training to be, to be holy is to be devoted. Perfect. Holiness means perfect devotion to God. In heaven, uh, we, we will be there in the, in, in the holy presence of God forever and ever, 100% devoted to him. And, and it's that to which God has called us even now in Christ Jesus. When we look at Christ and we see what, what he has done, that, that should encourage us. To, to live our lives before the face of God, even now as we live in this world. All that, that, that Israel failed to be, uh, Christ has become, and, and we are in him. And, and that's why as we look to Christ, as we trust, to Christ, trust Christ, as we fill our hearts and our, and our minds with thoughts of what Christ has done, as we devote ourselves sort of building on the sermon this morning, as we fill ourselves with the word, that word of the gospel of Christ, 
the grace of Christ, as we, as we, as we give ourselves to, to, to the study of God's word, well, that, that should encourage us to, to draw near unto God in him. We should be like the psalmist, David. I will give thanks with my whole heart when I recount all of your wonderful deeds. When I think about all that you have done for me in Christ, well, that should move me to love and devoted service. The New Testament picks up on these, the language of our text, and the, the apostles uh, took these and applied them directly to the church, to the Christians. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him you call, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or what the Apostle John's words in the beginning of Revelation, Revelation 1, 5, and 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul, he could write that, that, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, zealous for good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Note that well. God has redeemed us that we might be a people who are zealous, not that we're serving the Lord out of some sort of fear or in any sort of effort to become something or earn something from God, as Paul makes it so clear in the very next chapter in Titus. No, zealous because of what God has done for us in Christ. Devoted to good works, Paul would would command the believers to to, to be careful to devote yourselves to good works, but not, not out of slavish fear, but by the Spirit of Christ and with great empowered zeal for Christ in what? In view of what God has done. It's that to which God calls us in Christ. Let's be zealous, zealous for good works, but not because of anything we have done or could ever do, but all because of who we are in Christ. Let us in him live as God's treasured possession in Christ. May God help us to do it. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, open up our eyes this evening to see that such is what we are and such is how we shall then live to that end, Lord God, we pray that you would build us up by your grace, by the power of your spirit, uh, by the gospel. Uh, May that gospel fill our hearts and our minds and transform us and make us more like Christ. Oh, Lord, not only through the word preached this evening, but now as we receive that visible word of the supper which is uh, before us. Bless us, Lord, in all of these ways for the glory of our Savior, in whose name we do pray. Amen.